Okay, welcome. This is Mark chapter 2. Are we ready to go? Let's do it. All right, no introduction needed. We're in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has done all kinds of things bursting onto the scene in chapter 1, and that's just going to continue right into chapter 2 with uh, really just a smorgasbord of different activity as he's establishing himself as uh, as the Son of God. So verse 1, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Uh, we maybe would want to just say right there from verse 1 is that uh, Capernaum did seem to be kind of the home base of Jesus, as we mentioned in chapter 1. Um, this is probably not his home. Uh, Jesus in a later place would say you know, that he doesn't even have a place to, to lay his head. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably talking about Peter's house. Uh, that's where they were back in chapter 1 in Capernaum. So um, Jesus is at the mercy of just the goodwill of others as far as his lodging and food and those sorts of things. So back in Capernaum at Peter's place. Verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Let's just stop right there. (laughs) These guys, these four friends of this man um, are obviously great friends. Uh, That's the first thing we would say. Um, it says something as well about, uh, of course, the, the fame of Jesus, the fact that they couldn't even get through the door uh, with their friend, um, the fact that they were willing to climb on top of the roof, peel back the ceiling, and, and probably it was not you know, necessarily the same kind of ceiling structure that we would have in our houses today, uh, but to peel that back and to let their friend down to be able to get to Jesus. Um, this is maybe not specifically what's going on here, but there's a great point about evangelism here. To what lengths are we willing to go to get our friends and our loved ones to Jesus? I don't know. I've never chiseled a roof open before, but that might, you know, that's pretty impressive. That, that One point that I always drop from this passage is that... It's just there's a million excuses that could have been made mm-hmm. for not getting him into the into the the spot there where Jesus was preaching. You know, mm-hmm. you're paralytic. You can't come into the crowd. It won't work. You know, we'll have to make room for you. I mean, we can go, but maybe you got to li- be left behind at the door, or it's going to be way too hard, or X, Y, or Z. But no, they just they just grit it out, grit their teeth, and they just say, let's just do this. Yeah, and that kind of thing. Just when you when you apply that principle to evangelism. It really just shreds all of our excuses that we yeah. have. Um, well, like I said, they're 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 concerned about their friend's health physically. And what's neat is Jesus is he's going to do something about the man's health physically, but he's actually going to do something for him spiritually as well. Uh, here in just a couple seconds, mm-hmm. um, verse five. When Jesus saw their faith, that's impressive. I mean, the, the the fact that what they did was it was it was visible. And, and here's a great place to point out that, you know, faith is not just something that, you know, that we keep bottled up inside and it's just something we have in our hearts and we don't ever, it doesn't ever make its way out. No, this is, it was, it was able to be seen. Jesus yeah. could see it in action. And, and another thing too is people point to passages like this to kind of affirm that, that Jesus saves people just, just because of their faith as, as in like a, just, just an easy believism mm-hmm. kind of faith. But 
that's the opposite of what this is teaching. Like he he sees their faith, yeah. and that's why he says what he says next. Yeah, and again, it's it's the faith of the four men. It's not even he's not even noticing necessarily the faith of the paralytic man, yeah. and that's the man he's going to heal, and that's the man that he's going to end up you know forgiving sins of. But he sees the faith of these four four good friends, and so seeing their faith, he says to the paralytic, verse five, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there, and they were questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, there's John's John Mark's favorite word, <laughs> immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, before we get on to, to the next thing that Jesus says, this should have been, just, just this alone, the fact that Jesus questioned the things that they were questioning in their own hearts, and he gives voice to that, yeah. that alone should have convinced them that this man is something special. Mm-hmm. The fact that they were saying this inwardly, in their mind, and he knew what they were saying, yeah. and he calls them out on the carpet about it. That's pretty, that's pretty different. Another thing too, like, that I think is noteworthy there is sometimes in our spiritual discussions with people, we might be having disagreements, you know, sometimes, sometimes even brethren, but usually it's like people out in the world, they'll, they'll ask you a question, you'll respond to their question with a question, and they'll be like, well that's rude. Well it's like, well Jesus did it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's good. It's, it's thought provoking the way that he, he did that. And yeah. Yeah, so he he recognizes what's going on here with with these people and asks them. And then here's the here's the the, the tougher question, verse nine. Well, it's really not even a tough question. It's really kind of a rhetorical question, almost. Verse nine: Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, "Your sins are forgiven," or to say, "Rise, take up your bed, and walk"? Now, I guess there's a sense in which, well, it's easy to just say either of those things. Yeah. But the more difficult thing would be to say um, your sins are forgiven because there's not really any way to verify and validate that. I think this is just Jesus. Just He did this all throughout the ministry. That's the reason for the miracles, to confirm the message, like mm-hmm. you said. And he's saying, I can forgive sins. And that's something that's immaterial, is whether or not someone's saved, but whether or not this guy can walk again. It's a physical representation of the deliverance that he gives and the, the forgiveness of sins. Like he transfers us from this like broken position that we're in and, and heals us. Yeah. So it's going to be like, all right, well, if you want to see it with your own eyes, if you're going to be this hard-hearted, well, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> this was an occasion where Jesus could have just let the uh, the miracle itself stand on its own merit. And, you know, all right, I can heal this guy, and everybody's going to take from that what they will. But... He recognizes these people are saying these things in their mind, and they're already beginning to question him. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to just go ahead and expose something else about me as as God's son, and that is that I have the authority to forgive sin as well, that I'm not just an amazing miracle worker. And we saw that in abundance in chapter 1. I'm going to take that up to the next level now, and I'm going to be a guy that uh, shows that I really am from God. It's worth us pointing out here that the expression that he uses there in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, that's the first time, at least in Mark's gospel, 
that he uses the expression the son of man. Now he'll use it several other times, actually at the end of this chapter he'll use it again. Um, but that expression the son of man, for these you know Old Testament Bible understanding people, they would have recognized that expression son of man. And it actually comes out of Daniel the 7th chapter in verses 13 and 14. It's the only place in the Old Testament where that expression is used. And it is Daniel giving an interpretation of one of the great dreams that were saw by the king. So Daniel 7 verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So, okay, everybody would recognize that the Ancient of Days, that's obviously talking about God. So this Son of Man comes before and is presented before God. Verse 14, and to him, to this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And what Jesus does in Mark chapter 2 by referencing that Son of Man, Jesus is saying, it's me. I'm that guy. I am the Son of Man that the Ancient of Days has bestowed this honor and glory and dominion, this royalty, uh, this exalted position. And uh, and one of the things that I'm able to do is, yeah, I can forgive people of sins. Uh, I I am God in fleshly form. Yeah, and I feel like the at the time man like people there would be some people that would be educated about those things and they're earnestly waiting for the messiah and they're like every time they're hearing the you know that jesus say these kind of things they're like ears kind of perk up and they're like is this really him and then Mm -hmm. there's other people that are just you know they're just concerned with like those little addendum rules that are added on, and they like like the Pharisees, for example, that they're like he's sitting here saying, "I am the Messiah," and they're just like trying to find one error that he's making, you know? Yeah, yeah. This you you can't be. No, let's find some other uh, means by which we can discredit this claim. Um, yeah. Um, verse eleven. So he ends up saying to the paralytic, on the basis of all this, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And I would imagine not. Um, Amazing miracle, but also on top of that, the fact that this guy got to go home uh, a forgiven person. Um, So we're we're adding extra dimensions and layers to the power that Jesus uh, possessed. There's... There is this power over natural things and and health and and that sort of stuff, but there's also this this spiritual power that he possesses. Uh, right. Only only God can forgive sins. Um, it's worth saying that I believe that this this miracle specifically and other miracles are like echoed in other gospels too, which is again really faith building because if if I'm reading Mark as maybe someone who doesn't I'm not totally sold on the narrative that, that Jesus is the Son of God. Well then, there's these multiple accounts that all confirm the the stuff, the things that he did. Yeah, that and that's what Mark's doing. Mark's just uh, in his fast-paced way, um, he's just piling up. Here's here's evidence after evidence after evidence that what I started with in verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, here's I'm gonna just I'm gonna give you just a flood <laughs> of reasons as to why you should believe that. Uh, verse thirteen. 
So Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Of course, Levi is the other name for Matthew, the tax collector. And it's interesting that, you know, we saw this in chapter 1 when Jesus just, you know, has the encounter with Peter and Andrew and James and John, fishermen, and they were willing to just leave their nets and come and follow him. Uh, th- this is a, a, a kind of almost another uh, a different ball game by going to a tax collector, first of all, because that's like one of the last people you would think that the Lord would choose to be one of his you know, chosen uh, ambassadors, um, especially considering the way that tax collectors were viewed in first century times. I mean, they were considered just the villains of all villains, you know, the most hated. You know, the IRS today has nothing on the way tax collectors were looked at back then. And so for Jesus to ask this tax collector to come and follow him, that alone was would have been scandalous. The fact that Matthew would just w- would do that quickly, think about it. Tax collectors were known for being cheats and swindles, but what that probably also meant is it probably also meant that they were rich and well-to-do. You know, the famous story of Zacchaeus, he talks about, uh, you know, all the money that he had, and he was willing to, you know, return fourfold, you know, what he had taken from people. That says something about how much money he obviously did have, and I think it's probably safe to say Matthew probably also would have been a rich man, and he's willing to give it all up. Yeah. It's one thing for a bunch of fishermen to leave their fishing jobs. I don't imagine Peter, Andrew, James, and John were, you know, no. rolling rolling in the shekels. We have to leave our fishing boats. Yeah. No. Uh, but Matthew was willing to do that, and uh, obviously, I, I don't think this was like just the first Matthew had ever seen or heard of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Obviously, some things had gotten gotten to him. Maybe he had heard him teach in other venues and places, and you know, his conscience is maybe kind of already starting to work a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so by the time that Jesus comes to him and says, hey, I, I want you. The, yes, the, Lord, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe this isn't a direct parallel, but there's something to be said about evangelism here. It, again, we're learning from the Master when it comes to Jesus and, and the way he's recruiting these guys. Um, but like like you said, we would never think that a tax collector like, like Levi, like Matthew, would be one of the the original disciples like this but jesus obviously saw something in him something different now there's all different walks of life in the world and and not every person who's going to obey the gospel is going to be you know in a nice polo with some khakis you know waiting just sitting at a table with our bible open waiting for you to sit down and study with them like uh one example just from my own experience at, at eku a guy named uh devin who first thing he first conversation we had about anything spiritual he goes yes I'm a pagan <laughs> you know and and now he he's a guy who's showed a lot of interest in Jesus so it's like we can't just write people off because yeah. we think x y or z and have these presuppositions about them yeah we we do our little pre-screening processes with with people that uh it, it is many times just unfair i mean it's a it's a it's almost a form of of you know, like like we would compare to racism. Yeah. You know, where we're just prejudging people based on you know the outward look. And you know, again, it'd be easy to look at a guy that's like rolling in wealth and thinking, all right, well, he just he's kind of already got everything that you would imagine a person wants out of life, and uh, he wouldn't be interested in Jesus. That would be beneath him. But 
Matthew shows that that's that that's not always the case. Yeah. Um, it's Solomon who wrote like all this is vanity. Yeah. That was rolling in it big time. Yeah. But then you know there there there's just so many. I think the reason that we do that though is because. It excuses us from going deeper in our evangelism because yeah. we're like, ah, yeah, I already see it. It's not going to work out. It just, it's not going to work. Yeah. But how do you know if you haven't really went deep with this person? Really tried? Yeah. You know? Even if you don't go deep, just we're guilty of just not even trying. Yeah. I'm not even talking about we're, we're, we don't even do the surface thing, uh, let alone actually getting to a point where it's deep. Maybe it can't go deeper, uh, yeah. but we, we don't even make the first attempt. And so, yeah, we're learning kind of inadvertently. We're learning some. Important evangelistic um, ideas here from uh, just from watching Jesus. Um, verse uh, 15. So uh, Matthew's following him, verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So um, maybe Matthew uh, following Jesus, maybe that helped to kind of open up the door for even more of these kind of outcasts of society to see that, you know what, maybe we do have a place. Maybe maybe this life that we're living, you know, we don't have to do this, and there is a better way. And now we actually see somebody who, just in the very person of who he is and what he does, is showing us, yeah, there's something better than than the way that we're living. Um, What's embarrassing is that if the Pharisees and the scribes were so righteous, then why haven't they done this already? Yeah. Why haven't they gone out into these parts of society and pulled these people out of the water, you know? Yeah. And and that's what I think that's what's upsetting them so much is that Jesus is just doing what they know deep down that they should have been doing all along. He's condemning them just by just by his actions. He doesn't even have to even tell them, "Hey, you guys are are dropping the ball." Nope, he's just showing uh, showing the way. Uh, verse sixteen. Since you mentioned the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they then said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, and I think other translations maybe include uh, sinners to repentance, and that's the implication there. Um... That's who Jesus come for. Did Jesus come for those of us who, you know, quote unquote, grew up in the church and, um, you know, are are try, been trying to live the, the 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 Christian life ever since you know we first understood it? Yes, mm-hmm. but the people that he came for who 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 need him, um, in in a in a special kind of way, mm-hmm. you know, are the folks who have just made a shipwreck of. Of their lives, and maybe didn't have the same privileges that all the rest of us good church-going folks have had since you know since birth. Um, you know, I, I always try very hard to try to push against the 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 attitude that the scribes and the Pharisees had because it's easy to have that mentality uh, when you've you know grown up in in a good Christian home and had Christian parents and Christian grandparents and you know all my siblings are Christians and um, taking Christian wives and and all this kind of good stuff yeah. um, it's it's a challenge and and I, I like I said I can't read the Gospels without being stung often when I see the attitudes of the of the scribes and Pharisees and say, oh, that's 
that's me sometimes. Jesus is rebuking me uh, yeah. just as much as he was rebuking them. And that, I mean, I did not grow up in that background, but it's still like the more time I spend, like especially in like a teaching kind of role, like the more you have to rail against those kinds of things yeah. to be like. And I think that I really do think, and I I still have a lot to work on in this regard, but I really do think the solution is is, is to be more evangelistic and be involved in thing and have not just. Not just the outward actions of like an evangelist. I'm not talking about being on the payroll. I'm just talking about being the kind of person that evangelizes. I'm I'm saying when you have the mindset of an evangelist that I come from the same place as all these other people, you know, Jesus is the only thing holding me up right now, and I just want them to. I, I want to introduce them. I'm going to be like the the guys who you know they pulled their friend up to the roof and they broke their way in. Like when you have that mindset, it has to humble you. And it has to bring you to a place where, you know, because, I mean, I'll tell you, man, I've had my face, the, the, the door slammed in my face by, quote, unquote, Gentile after Gentile and sinner after sinner. And no, nothing is more humbling. So, you know, you, you, you just got to mature. It needs to come back to that old adage about what evangelism is, and that is it's one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Exactly. And when we all recognize that we're beggars, then we're we're gonna it, it, we're just gonna have that lifestyle of of like we're just pointing people. Hey, there's bread over here. Yeah. Let's let's get it. Come on. That's, what are we waiting for? We're hungry. <laughs> Our soul is starving. Yeah. And that's why I don't want to be. I, I never want to seem judgmental. But when Christians say to me things like, you know, they they encountered this person and they were so rough off and they'll rip, rip off like a sin that they're doing. Like, oh, they're so bad off on drugs or oh, that person's a you know, they're they're engrossed in their sexual sin or they're homosexual or they're, you know, they're a thief or X, Y, or Z. And they're just, like, talking about them so harshly and crudely. And it's like it's like they're talking as though, like, this person is, like, less than human. Mm-hmm. And it's like that, that nothing sours my stomach faster. I'm like, man, shouldn't you be like, well, I'm like, well, did you talk to them? Did you share the gospel with them? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're having all these thoughts about how rough this person was, well, at what point did you try to help them? You know, because otherwise they're just standing there like, appro- like approving, yeah. like enabling that, knowing that it's happening, and you you're sitting here with the solution. It's like give them that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's my, the Pharisee's problem. Yes. The, 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 here's these people have all kinds of knowledge uh, of of the Word of God. You know, at least to then, which was was the Old Testament scriptures, and um, you know they're they're hoarding all the bread to themselves. Yeah. Uh, just because this guy doesn't look like us, or, or maybe because he didn't, you know, come up with the the family pedigree that that I did, and um, yeah, that's a mm, that that'll prick you in the heart when you kind of come from a, a somewhat same background where you've been given those same privileges. Um, but Jesus, ah, this is this is my mission. He says, "This is the mission statement." Verse seventeen: I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we need to remember that. Um, that just transitions right into another episode. I'm not sure, sure if we're to take it that this is immediately afterwards, or this is just, again, a kind of a compilation of a series of events uh, that maybe would have happened over a stretch of time. But verse 18, here's another encounter that Jesus has with these uh, folks who were beginning to, to show, uh, they're starting to show some of the shades of the people that would become his greatest enemies. Verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, probably I'll just mention here, there, there were lots of different fasts 
commanded under the Old Testament law. And, the, and those were binding. I mean, if you were if you were a, a, a good Jew, you know, you would observe all the fasts that were commanded. The, the troubling thing was that there were lots of additional fasts, and it wouldn't wasn't wasn't necessarily a wrong thing for you know a Jew or a Pharisee or what have you to to want to fast more than what the law commanded. But the Pharisees had gotten to a point where they were binding additional fasts, uh, and they were doing that as a show of, you know, it shows I'm just so much more holy, and, and my piety is so much greater because I fast you know, twice as much as the regular uh, Jewish person does. And so people are noticing, hey, you know, Jesus, your guys that are following you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and um, or not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what am I saying? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Matthew, and, and then all the other unnamed disciples that are following him, uh, to this point, uh, hey, they're not they're not doing that so much. What's the you know what, what exactly is the deal here? So verse nineteen, Jesus says to them, "Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast." In other words, this just isn't the time for fasting. And of course, this is Jesus using a metaphor that's going to become really important in, in the, the later part of his ministry, and then even after he ascends into heaven. Uh, then when he talks about the bridegroom, he's talking about himself. Yeah. And what he's talking about is he's talking about, you know, th- this actually is a time for rejoicing because the bridegroom, in this case the Messiah, mm-hmm. he's here. And there ought to be some celebrating. And we got we got some work to do. And this isn't the time for us to be sad and to be, you know, sour and to be, you know, putting sackcloth on our head and and fasting and mourning and all that kind of stuff. That's not that's not the time for this. When the bridegroom's gone, okay, maybe there'll be a place for some of that. Mm-hmm. But this isn't the time for any of that. Verse twenty: The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And so Jesus is really just kind of speaking about how, hey, th- this is a great day. Yeah. And we're going to be about my father's business uh, right now. Just fasting is just not really that's just not really priority number one right now. I think it comes down to like the another thing too. Just practically, they're about to work. Yeah. And work hard. It's like I feel like fasting is for. Uh, this is maybe just kind of an opinion, but I, I don't know. Fasting to me, that's for your meditation. Like that's so you can, you know, unplug and you can you can kind of stop moving, yeah, and and just process what's gone on, yes. And th- there's isn't a time for like like you said, there's isn't a time for processing. This is a time for W O R K. Yeah, let's do it. Yes, it's like it just the, the timing is off. It's you know, fasting would generally be associated with you know times of somberness mm-hmm. and solemn reflection, like you said, and it's just. It, it just doesn't match up uh, with what we're trying to be about right now. It would be like, it would be like taking the Lord's Supper and like just having the biggest grin and smile on your face the whole time. Yeah. Like it just, it just doesn't match up. Or to be singing the song, sing and be happy, but you just got this the most sour sing countenance on your face. And be happy too. Yeah. It just, just doesn't doesn't work. It's just uh, again the, the timing is off about that. Although I have been in assemblies where we do sing that song that way. It, it can happen. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we need to maybe heed Jesus's words here and let's get our get our timing correct on things. Yeah. Uh, maybe the other thing that I think that Jesus recognizes here though is that these people who come and ask this question. Um, they're clinging to this stuff because it's it's part of the Old Testament law. And and what Jesus is trying to get people to start seeing is that something new is here. Right. 
The Messiah is here. Something uh, even better, if you use the language of the book of Hebrews, uh, better things are coming. And what Jesus wants them to understand right away is that, look, we're not pulling this Old Testament stuff into what is new and what's about to to happen. And he, I think he kind of punctuates and makes that point in these couple little mini parables, if you will, in the next couple verses, verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine is going to burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. New wine is for fresh wineskins. So think about that, about the, the, the garment with the patch. You know... Nobody gets a whole. All right, you got you got a nice pair of blue jeans. Maybe it's your favorite pair of blue jeans, mm-hmm. and they're good and broken in, and they've been washed, and they just, just fit really good. But then they get a hole in them. All right, nobody says, "All right, how am I going to fix this?" Oh, okay, well here's a pair of pants over here that my wife got me for Christmas that are I don't like them, I don't care to wear them. They've never been worn. They're stiff, uh, so I'm going to cut a piece of fabric off of that, and I'm going to put it on these old good pants that are broken in, and I'm going to sew that on there. Well, what's going to happen the next time you wash those and throw those in the washer and the dryer? What's going to happen yeah. is is it's going to it's going to tear. And on top of that, it's going to look stupid. It's not going to match, you know. Uh, And so that's the kind of idea Jesus is saying here about the idea of taking the old law, these things from the Old Testament, and we're going to somehow kind of just put those on top of Christianity. We're going to kind of just blend all of that together. Uh, Jesus is really kind of pushing uh, against that. You think about all the different religious sects and groups that existed within uh, Judaism at that point. There were the Pharisees, of course. Uh, and, of course, they were super strict with all their regulations, the man-made regulations they had made. There was the Sadducees, and the Sadducees seemed to be a lot about you know, money and power and really were kind of in bed with the Romans. Then you had groups like the Essenes who were way out there, even stricter than the Pharisees, lived down by the Dead Sea, and they kind of had their own thing uh, going. Weren't those the zealot group? They, they, they were they, well. They they would have been considered like a zealot group. Uh, but yeah, then then there was the zealots. That was a whole separate oh, yeah. uh, section, and they were all against revolting against the Roman government. And they thought that's what God, you know, really wanted them to do. But you had all these different groups in Judaism. But at the end of the day, they were still all Jews, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people were saying about these followers of Christ, you know, ah, you know. Peter, Andrew, James, John, all these guys, they're all a little bit different, but they follow that guy from Nazareth, but, you know, they are still all Jews, and, well, we're all still just kind of under the big banner of Judaism. Mm -hmm. Jesus wants them to know, no, 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 I'm not bringing along another flavor of Judaism. This is something entirely new. This is something that uh, has certainly talked about in the Old Testament. Uh, if you paid attention when you went to you know the temple and heard the rabbis and teachers teach, you would have been looking forward to this. Uh, but I'm bringing about something else. We're not going to patch on what I'm doing as an extra patch of Judaism. Uh, I'm bringing something new, and so I think that's I think that's the main point of 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 these couple of little parables. These are actually kind of puzzling parables for some, but I think if we were just kind of make it simple, I think that's what he's trying to teach. The same thing with the wine skins. Um, we don't have. Very well, 
I've never seen a wine skin in person. Uh, people that drink wine today generally probably don't carry them around in wine skins. Uh, but of course, if you're carrying around uh, unfermented uh, wine in a wine skin, when it begins to ferment, eventually it's going to bust. Yeah. And again, that's that's the whole problem with this: trying to mix the old with the new. Jesus says it's just it's just not going to work. So, do we think that? Um, are you positing that Jesus is doing the fast that are bound still? We can kind of safely assume that, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. of course, Jesus perfectly kept uh, yeah. the old law. So there's no doubt that he kept all of the, uh, the the fast that would have been commanded that were associated with the law of Moses. But like I said earlier, there's, there's all kinds of additional fasts um, that the... The Pharisees had added, and, and even even some of the disciples of John the Baptist. You know, maybe I don't know whether they got that from, maybe they just took that from John. They saw John fasting for various reasons, and before you know it, to them it became a law almost. Well, if John's doing it, okay, then we have to do it, and so, and that's that's the way sometimes traditions become something that maybe is a good thing, yeah, and maybe is a good tradition for a person to do or for a group of people to do if they if they so choose. But the danger is, is it can become law this is how brother so-and-so always did it and, yeah or like this is the this is how the church that i grew up in this is the order of worship we always use man a song a prayer two songs and then we give the lesson and that if you do it any other way well then you know i don't have fellowship with that yeah kind of thing yeah this is i i, I think you're right though that there's there's no doubt about it that yeah. jesus would have kept all of the the commanded fasts yeah. that were part of the old testament law um jesus you know uh, crossed every T and dotted every I, yeah. you know, he would say in, in the Sermon on the Mount. So, um, yeah. So, verse 29. Um, here's one more thing since we're talking about the old law and about the things that were part of uh, keeping the old law. Uh, this question comes up about about keeping the Sabbath. So, verse 23, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Love oh, the Pharisee voice. Picking, yeah, I probably should have practiced that ahead of time and picked a better one. But Look. Um, yeah, what are they doing? They're plucking, plucking, plucking stuff to eat on the Sabbath day. That's that's work. Can't do that. Not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. Jesus says to them, verse twenty-five: Have you never read what David did when he was in need and when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the present, which it is not lawful for any, but the priests to eat, and also he gave it to those who were with him. And so Jesus points out, yeah, I mean, David even did something. I don't think necessarily Jesus is like commending David yeah. uh, for you know that particular occasion. And if I could see this super small print, I would say where that is in the Old Testament. Maybe you can see the reference there. I can't remember it right off the top of my head as to where that uh, those events take place at. Um, but Jesus is like, yeah, uh, you know, even David on occasion, um, you know, ate something that he shouldn't have ate. And uh, so now you guys are here pointing the finger at me and my disciples about all of this. Here's the point Jesus wants to make from all of that. Again, it's not to, I'm going to pat David on the back and say he did a good thing there. Here's his point, verse 27 and 28. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And I think what Jesus, one of the, at least one of the things that he's pointing out is that, you know, you, you guys have taken something that God intended to be a good thing, 
the Sabbath was absolutely intended to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. It was to be a day of, of, of resting and a day of uh, reflecting on a person's relationship with the Lord. I'm going to focus on God and I'm going to think about um, you know, where I am in relation to Him and I can just kind of strip my life of all these other external you know, things that are jockeying for my attention. It's just me and the Lord on this, this one day a week. And that's what God intended for it to be. But the Pharisees and others like them had just, they'd lost sight of that. And it became more about the keeping of the rule. And now we have to define the rule down to the, you know, the nth degree. And it just follows and keeps going and gets more complicated. It gets more complicated to where you've got, you know, I've, I've preached on this before about the Talmud, which was the collection of all of the different oral traditions that the rabbis had given, which was in addition to all the things that were already in the law of Moses. So it's like we gotta write these things down, we gotta codify them all, gotta put them all in a book, and now you've got something that is 6,000 pages large, to where even if you wanted to sit down and try to figure out some stuff, it would be way more than the human brain could even retain and comprehend. Yeah. Um, and, and, and at the end, what, what, what have you proved? You didn't prove anything. Like, did, did you actually even do what it was originally designed to do? And I, that is to let you have some time to focus on your relationship with God. I mean, by the time you got to page 1000, you've probably already forgotten page 1 through 500 anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, man, I mean, that's just, that's, that's what Jesus is emphasizing here is the, how the Sabbath was made for man. Like that was, that was for your guys' benefit. It was a gift, yeah. Now you've made it a burden. Yeah. Yeah. And that's typical Pharisee. Yeah. Of course, in Matthew 23 and those other places where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, you know, big time, he talks about how, you know, you guys have created just these huge burdens for people and you've made it so hard for them uh, to be able to please God, and that that's not what God had in mind at all. I love the statement, the finishing statement there, at the end of the chapter, verse 28, that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Um, one of the points that I've often just drew out of that is you know, Sabbath is talking about a particular day of the week, but I think we could kind of broaden that principle. Jesus is saying, I, I am the Lord of your time. Yeah. And I often think about that when we hear about, uh, you know, different excuses that get made for, you know, I don't have time to, don't have time to read the Bible, don't have time to, um, you know, go serve others, um, don't have time for evangelism, don't have time to do all these other good works that God wants us to be involved in. Hey, no, 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 it's, it's not an issue if you don't have the time. It's the fact that you haven't made the Lord the Lord of your time and you've given those minutes to some other Lord, some other master. There is a disclaimer that needs to be made. There's a lot of folks who they really do, you know, they work hard, they work long hours, things like that. That's sure, true. Sure, sure. But I feel like if – I think if we're all honest with our schedules and we laid it all out, we would see that, okay, there's – here's a, two hours of just television. Here's two hours of just sitting on the couch accidentally falling asleep having a little nap, you know. Here's – okay, I can make time for this, you know. Yeah. No, no matter who you are. Yeah. Even if you're waking up at – Long before work at like 5 a.m. to do like a devotional or something like that, you can you can make time for God. He 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 doesn't give us commands that it's impossible for us to fulfill those. No, so. no, yeah. Uh, well, um, that's a great note to end on. That the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Maybe hopefully we've used some of our time wisely uh, studying this chapter. Looking forward to chapter three next week. Any other thoughts before we go? Everybody else should use their time wisely and listen to chapter three as well. All right, chapter three coming up next week.